Welcome to the MCG podcast episode, The COVID-19 Pandemic and MCG's Response. Today is Thursday, April 9th, 2020. I'm your host, Snapper Plone, and today I'm joined by Dr. Bill Rivkin. He is the Managing Editor and Physician Relations Specialist at MCG, and we will be discussing the COVID-19 pandemic, also known as the coronavirus pandemic, and what MCG is doing to support healthcare professionals. So welcome, Dr. Rifkin. Would you care to introduce yourself to those listeners who may not be familiar with your role here at MCG and then give us your initial thoughts on the coronavirus pandemic and how MCG is responding? Sure. Thank you. I'm Dr. Bill Rifkin. I'm an internist and I've been the, I'm the managing editor for the inpatient care content here at MCG. And I've been working at MCG for the past 11 years. In support of the efforts to combat COVID-19, we've written and will release a new set of guidelines which will apply to the care of COVID-19 patients. Much is unknown about the pandemic and the virus and the response, but it's undeniable that consistent admission and discharge decisions are gonna be of central importance to keep hospital beds available, to keep ventilators available, to just keep the EDs moving along these types of clear recommendations and standards and, and uh, criteria are going to be very important. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about these new guidelines that MCG has created and is going to be urgently releasing in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, how are those going to be helpful? So the new guideline is called viral illness, comma, acute for table of content purposes, but we can call it acute viral illness. With, there's adult PEDS versions as well as an observation care guideline. Like I said, with the extreme stretching of resources, staff and available beds, it's of vital importance that level of care decisions are made correctly and importantly, consistently. With the point being that from admission to discharge, help make sure each admission day in the hospital is necessary and can be officially, efficiently documented. Actually, this sort of logic can apply to any of the guidelines, any of the diagnoses uh, and procedures that we cover, that you know, just as it's important to move COVID-19 patients officially, efficiently through the system, the same thing holds with all hospitalized patients at this point, that this is the time to be running things as lean and mean as at all possible. And our admission and discharge criteria, we hope, will help in that, in that regard. Another angle that uh, we hope the new guideline uh, will help with is uh, cohorting and collating the best of the best citations, resources, websites for more information to be uh, accessed by our users. There's a wealth of information out there. It's fairly easily to get bombarded with it and latch on to the wrong citation or website or what's the best place to go for information about isolation requirements. And we provide very direct links to those resources. And I think in, in an evolving picture like COVID-19 that that's, that's important. Some of it is about you know just what are the rules around isolation, and some of the information coming through can also be updates as time goes on. There's going to be changes in what the treatment clinical recommendations are going to be. If a treatment ever demonstrates efficacy, if there's other changes that they that that, that are, want to be promulgated, you'll have access to those you know best of the best sources of information. 
And so for which diagnoses are these new guidelines intended to be used for? Well, certainly one of them is COVID-19. That's sort of the reason um, we dropped everything else we were doing and and really trying to concentrate on putting out these guidelines. And the rest of the company is also dropping everything it's doing to make sure that we get this unique mid-cycle release of a guideline and pushing it out there as quickly as possible to everybody. So certainly COVID-19 is part of it. The title should give you a clue. It's called Acute Viral Illness. Um, and in general, the, the, the cohort or the candidates for the guideline would be patients with acute viral infections, mostly pulmonary or systemic in nature. So not primarily gastrointestinal infections. We have guidelines, gastroenteritis, dehydration, vomiting that would cover that. It's not for primarily neurological infections like meningitis or encephalitis that that stuff is covered elsewhere and finally it's it's not for primarily uh rash or skin-based findings like you know run-of-the-mill zoster what it is for is pretty much all the other acute viral illnesses which tend to cleave into the pulmonary and the systemic in nature um a big part of the new guideline is patients who will be presenting with pneumonia in that they will meet the criteria for pneumonia, fever, shortness of breath, findings on on imaging, and um, there will be, there is overlap between this guideline and our present pneumonia guideline. And I think one of the first areas to become comfortable with is which pneumonias should be cared for in the pneumonia guideline in which pneumonia patients will be applicable to this new guideline. So the way to get at this, I think, is it gets at how certain the clinician is of the etiology of the pneumonia. There are cases where it's fairly clear it's a viral infection. Either they have a whole syndrome, they have COVID-19 testing, there's influenza testing. For whatever reason, it's fairly clear that this is viral in origin. And that's would be appropriate for the acute viral illness guideline. If the etiology isn't so clear, and a way I think to operationalize that would be if the clinician is treating with antibiotics empirically. So meaning, yes, they have pneumonia, it might be viral, it might be bacterial, it might even be fungal. So I am not willing to put my nickel down that it's viral, so I'm still covering the patient with empirical antibiotics. That is the type of pneumonia that should still be treated in the pneumonia guideline. So I think it, it comes down to the clinician's certainty, and I think a good way to get a glimpse at that certainty is to see whether or not they treat the patient empirically with antibiotics. For adults, I would say that um, for, for both adults and pediatrics, most of the pneumonias are going to remain in the pneumonia guidelines because for most community-acquired pneumonia, the etiology isn't so clear. But there are some, especially with the current pandemic and our seasonal influenza outbreaks, where it's very clear that this is, this is viral. And in the adult version of this guideline, 60% of the, of the patients in the new guideline will have influenza. So this was written with COVID in mind, of course, but there've been other, there are other bad viruses out there that uh, lead people to hospitals. And so in the adult guidelines, 60% of the patients 
uh, have influenza. All of these numbers are without data around COVID-19. Of course, right now, the vast majority of patients in the hospitals are COVID-19 patients. But just hitherto, these are the types of patients that would be in this guideline. And that could be influenza with or without pneumonia. For pediatric patients, it's a little bit more mixed. About 12% of the patients would, would, have, would have influenza. But there's a longer tail, there's a longer list of generalized viral infections that get identified more readily in the pediatric population that help populate this guideline. So I spoke about pneumonia a little bit. The guideline is also certainly for people who have a generalized viral uh, infection. So systemic findings like dehydration, hypotension, altered mental status. We considered creating a guideline only for COVID-19 patients, but we judged it would be more useful to group together diagnoses that share so many of the clinical indications for admission and recovery milestones towards discharge. There's a lot of overlap. And even though right now everybody's hyper-focused on COVID-19, as they should be, there are outbreaks of other viruses that are, are clinically important and resource-intensive as well. There's every, every, every winter's flu season, uh, there's been other coronavirus outbreaks. So the, the idea of a guideline that is useful for this outbreak, but it's also useful for other similar outbreaks, was very, very attractive to us and tr to try and be of maximal use. And that, that decision also has some practical consequences, because as I mentioned, right now with COVID-19, there's very little data out there. There's little cohort studies here and there, and there's even a, some small randomized studies on, on some medications. But the idea of, a, if you're looking for a wealth of information on what does a bad acute viral illness, pulmonary uh, viral illness look like, you can get a lot of mileage out of influenza and some of the other viral etiologies. So in terms of the evidence base we were using, in terms of the general structure of the guideline and what are the, the moving parts in terms of the clinical indications and recovery milestones, tapping into some of this other literature was very, very helpful. So it is definitely, this guideline is definitely written with COVID-19 patients in mind, but it also, I think, is able to well cover these other viral illnesses as well. And so it was to the greater good to make the guideline as robust uh, for this sort of thing as possible. So are there aspects of this new guideline content that may have a particular use to clinicians addressing the COVID-19 pandemic? Sure. I think first and foremost would be the clinical indications for admission. Like I said, there's pulmonary signs and symptoms, and there's systemic signs and symptoms uh, and, and findings. Sometimes, like in all of our guidelines, sometimes the, in, the finding in and of itself indicates a need for uh, inpatient care. So in this, in this case, it would be a presentation with hypoxia, you know, new hypoxia in a patient. That would be, gee, things are pretty bad. They need to be in a hospital Where, as an inpatient. Whereas somebody presents with, you know, they're dehydrated and they're not, you know, they're, they're little, have low blood pressure, they're not able to maintain their hydration, a subset of that might end up needing to be an inpatient, but some of the people might also perk up after they get uh, rehydrated. 
So, so different, just like it is for all of our other guidelines, there's findings that are, you know, it's pretty bad, so you need to be in the hospital, and there's really no role for observation care. And then there's other times where, well, gee, probably most people, you know, you should at least see what they look like when they're less dehydrated, you know, unless there's another indication for admission. If the only indication is they're dehydrated, well, let's see how they look after, after we revive them a little bit. Uh, and then a decision can be made down the road. I guess there's some pearls or tips to take home from these guidelines. One would be that the isolation question is very pertinent to the COVID-19 and some of these other included uh, viruses as well, but it's, it's, it's in our world right now about COVID-19. A, a important aspect of our guidelines is that isolation care needs in and of itself is not does not necessarily indicate a need for inpatient care. There could be situations such that the home life or the alternatives aren't there, and for whatever reason, yes, observation care, the guidance to observation care, we really couldn't find any other way to provide this isolation, so they need to be admitted for that, for that reason. But in general, absent other clinical indications, you know, other, other clinical factors that would meet inpatient criteria, the need for isolation, the answer, I guess, would be it depends. Sometimes that might be enough. Sometimes it's, it's not, if there's other viable alternatives. And this is sort of where we get back to, rather than us listing the isolation requirements for COVID-19, which are changing week by week, what we do is we sort of say, the reason to be inpatient is that you can't get this level of isolation elsewhere. And here's a link to the CDC where they give you the latest information on what the isolation needs are. And this serves for both the admission side and the discharge side. So similarly, the need for isolation doesn't, is not necessarily an indication that they need continued inpatient care. It could be that they are clinically better. Yes, they still need isolation, but they can go wherever, you know, wherever it can be arranged safely, you know, so that is an option. It doesn't mean that it will always be an option. There will be situations where there is no viable alternative, but it becomes a, a it depends game rather than an automatic thing. And I, I guess you could sort of say another similar finding to the isolation piece is the fever piece, that fever in and of itself is not necessarily an indication for inpatient care. It may certainly travel with other findings and, and signs and symptoms that do indicate a need for inpatient care. But usually fever in and of itself, no altered mental status, no dehydration, you know, no other severe findings is, is usually not an indication for inpatient care. It, it, it's an indication of disease. It's an indication to watch them very closely. But in and of itself doesn't necessarily indicate uh, a need for admission. And that might surprise some users. This is probably more of an issue on the other side, that a patient can be otherwise ready for discharge, but they're still febrile. And there is still this, I think, remnant of an old school of thought that people had to be afebrile before discharge. And that you know depends on the situation, of course, but in the case of COVID-19 as an example, 
if all other systems look good and they can go home and the isolation can be arranged, they don't need to stay in the hospital for their fever. And this becomes important when we're talking about the bed crunch and you know the numbers and we really want to be able to move people through the system. This is the type of decision-making that really, it would be really beneficial if it was made consistently across different doctors and different physicians. Another area where the guidelines might be particularly important in the situation we are in now is we have, we have pre-existing ICU guidelines, and we have guidelines that have uh, criteria around vital signs, laboratory findings, physical exam signs, monitoring needs, specific treatment needs. We also have indications specifically around pneumonia and respiratory insufficiency. Because another big decision is, does this patient need intensive care? And those beds are even more precious and the resources are stretched even thinner there. So consistency of who needs the next level of care uh, is also something that I think would be important, an important use case for these guidelines. Our guidelines are never written to dictate care. What it can do, and I think it's important, is serve as a platform upon which to evaluate patients, make decisions, reduce unexplained variation, and guide efficient, effective documentation. So sort of everybody's rowing in the same direction and we're using similar standards to describe what is sick and what is less sick and what is inpatient and what's not inpatient and sort of get rid of as much as we can individual clinician differences in their thresholds for different, for, for different levels of care to the degree that that can be done. I mentioned this a little bit earlier that in terms of finding the resources, and it's not just for the COVID-19. We highlight and point out important influenza resources when that's the issue you're dealing with. And some of these are citations, it's literature articles, and it's, you know, it's a classic evidence base. And some of it is, here's the specific CDC or WHO website that is the authority if your question is X, Y, or Z. And rather than us come up with an answer, which might be out of date 10 days after the guideline is released, we felt it was better to, how about we just say this is an issue, this is a decision node, and by the way, the actual criteria are, are easily available over here. And, and I, that was sort of the do no harm answer to things is to make the information available. And I think this type of winnowing down of this explosion of information is very important because the less time people are spending searching and finding resources and evidence, that's more time that can be spent actually reading and digesting and acting upon the evidence, which is, of course, the goal. Can you give some insight into the methodology for creating evidence-based guidelines? I mean, given that this is an emerging pandemic, um, are there any limitations in how this guideline content can be used? Well, there certainly was an all-hands-on-deck moment. Um, this was the only occasion I can recall where pretty much everybody in the company stopped doing what they were doing on other things and focused on this in order to get these guidelines done, done to our standards, and get them made, released in the software, explained about, trained around. So there's a lot of moving parts to get this done. Obviously, this is a unique clinical uh, emergency that we are in, and we certainly wanted to do anything we could to play our part in this. So it was an all hands on deck. It was the usual 
work that we do, which is first scouring and, and, and searching for the best, most pertinent evidence and building off of that evidence and showing people where that evidence is. I think, again, th there's a temptation for, to include a lot of materials on treatment and who should be, you know, get hydroxychloroquine and who shouldn't. And we tended to not go there because it's very changeable. And frankly, none of this is clear yet. So it was better to say something is unclear. Here's a good resource for it rather than here's our answer to something that might be valid for two and a half weeks and then would no longer be valid. So that was a, that's different than usual. We're usually not writing guidelines where the, the evidence base is quite so dynamic and, and changing. Another difference about this guideline, certainly for COVID uh, patients, is the, how length of stay pertains to it. So for both the adult and pediatric guideline, the goal length of stay is ambulatory or two days. So the ambulatory means, like it always does, is that some patients are not admitted. It could be a small percentage, it could be a big percentage, but admission is not automatic. There is a decision to be made. That's why there's an observation care guideline to help you with that. And the two days means of patients admitted, the goal length of stay is two days. And the goal length of stay discussion could be a whole nother uh, podcast, but in brief, the goal length of stay is that length of stay which can be attained in a reasonable proportion of patients when things go well. It's not a miracle. So it's usually 20 to 40% of patients in any given guideline achieve the goal length of stay, but it's importantly, it's not the mean, it's not the median, it's not a mandate. We'll speak in a moment about how our content can be very useful to extend hospital stays. Um, but th this two-day goal length of stay doesn't apply to the COVID patients. So another unique angle on this is that we, th no one has any idea. Anybody who says they think they know what the length of stay behavior is going to be of COVID patients, they're fooling themselves. Nobody knows the answer yet. There's just not enough data yet. So th this goal length of stay of A or two days is based on all the other diagnoses where we have tremendous amount of evidence, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients. So we're very comfortable with the goal length of stay for that. But for, for COVID, besides having footnotes and annotations that make very clear that this two-day goal length of stay doesn't apply, is Infection with, uh, co with the virus that causes COVID-19 is an extender. And those of us, those familiar with our content, it means we t try to list those conditions or situations that are common enough and are strong predictors of a longer length of stay so that it's worth mentioning. So somebody says, oh, okay, so this two days has nothing to do with, with, this two, uh, with the COVID-19 patients because COVID-19 is listed as a extender. Another way that any guideline, no matter the goal length of stay, can help you get to the right length of stay, which is really what you want, is to use the discharge recovery milestones. Every ORC table, optimal recovery course table, lists recovery milestones that move you day to day. The last day's recovery milestone constitutes the discharge criteria. You measure a patient against the discharge criteria. They're not meeting one or more of them. You document that. You document why you say that. You document what you're doing about it. And now you've very well explained and defended why the patient needs another day in the hospital. This is what I'm saying that it, it could be just, our content could be just as used to defend extended stay 
as it can be used to say, well, gee, you know, they're meeting all these criteria. You know, is there another reason they're staying in the hospital? Because otherwise it seems like they might go. So I think for this guideline for the COVID-19 patients, the main length of stay angle is going to be comparing it against the recovery milestones and it being in the extended stay section should alert everybody that this is not a two day, you know, don't, don't go up to somebody in two days and say, how come they're not home yet? Um, and, and we've done that all the time. We do that with all the diagnoses. There's pneumonia and then there's really bad pneumonia. And we have ways of describing really bad pneumonia. And those are patients who are not going to make the goal length of stay either. So none of this is unique to COVID. I just wanted to make sure it was clear how we envision until there's more data available, how we envision our content can help with day-to-day -day evaluation of the length of stay and when discharge might be reasonable. So for now, how should the extended stay section be used for COVID-19 patients? Well, I, I, like I mentioned, it's, there's a few ways to view this. Again, because of the lack of definitive data in our extended stay section, we tend to say expect a brief one to three or a moderate four to seven, or a prolonged over seven extension of the length of stay. And just to give you a ballpark, okay, are we talking about a disaster? I shouldn't even think about discharge for another week, or is this day to day? The answer for COVID-19 is, the honest answer is we don't know. I, we can come up with a number, it would be a made up number, and you know we don't do that. So like I said, I think it's going to be and the COVID-19 patient might meet some of the other recovery model, uh, extended stays. You know, we're saying infection with COVID is an extender, but the infected patient with COVID could also have respiratory failure, which is an extender. And that extender does have some information on length of stay. It's not particularly based on data from COVID patients, but meaning there's more ways to document exactly why this patient needs to stay in the hospital today, or maybe they don't. And, you know, this would be a good time to move people through as quickly as possible. So, again, those, between the extended stay section and the recovery milestone, we're hoping that that would be, you know, half the battle is clinical indications to admission. The other battle is what, when is it safe to discharge somebody? And we're hopeful that's how we can be helpful for that second piece. As we close up, do you have any final remarks for hospitals and healthcare workers who are on the front lines of this pandemic? I would like to say that in creating these guidelines, MCG is sincerely trying to do our part in these extraordinary times to do what we do. What we do is make guidelines, which we hope are helpful in making some of these tough utilization or level of care decisions. And it was our desire to get a quality guideline out there as quickly as possible to help with these decisions, which sadly it looks like there's going to be at least some level of need to, to triage resources around this for some time to come. Like I mentioned before, like many other people in the healthcare field and other fields as well, the regular day job sort of was put aside for a while and this became the focus. I can't recall another time where in response to a medical reality out, out, out in the real world that we all of a sudden felt like we needed to provide more guidance. This was it. And it was a real team effort. This was a classic case where pretty every little function that is required to get from an idea to an actual guideline 
had to drop what they were doing and focus only on that, hoping that we will be of some use and in some way help all those who are helping so many. I live in New York, and what I see and hear from the front lines is, of course, awful and painful, but it's also inspirational. Everyone, no matter how they're related to healthcare, directly behind the scenes is pitching in. And just as it was in, during and in the weeks after 9-11 for uh, NYPD and FDNY, this is sort of our call to arms. This is the why healthcare people went into healthcare. And that's why we felt like it was our duty to put a guideline like this together and to educate about it and be available to teach people how to use it. You know, just like firemen ran into crumbling skyscrapers, we now have health workers who are accepting significant personal risk for themselves and their families every day collectively, nationwide, millions of times a day. And a quote that's been rattling around in my brain as I see all this happening is actually from Winston Churchill when he was talking about the Royal Army Air Force, the RAF, in its fight against uh, Germany at, during the dark days of the Battle of Britain. And it was just a few flyers seemingly keeping the empire afloat. And he said, never has so much been owed to so few by so many. And that's sort of the situation we are in now. Uh, we sincerely hope that our contribution to the cause will be of use and help those to whom so much is and will be owed. Well, thank you for all of this important information, Dr. Grifkin. I know a lot of healthcare professionals have written to MCG for evidence-based guidance on COVID-19. And I think this podcast was a great opportunity to address some of those questions. So thank you for joining us today and for sharing these updates and, as always, for sharing your clinical knowledge with us. My pleasure. Thank you. As a note for our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about MCG and these new evidence-based guidelines for COVID-19, please visit www.mcg.com and click Contact MCG, or you can call 1-888-464-4746. Thank you for joining us today, and please stay safe.